Well, you are going to work, Brian Mannix. I know it's, you know, one day a year, but hopefully it'll be more than that. Hello, Brian Mannix, and welcome to Life of Brian. Mannix, that is. <laughs> G'day, Kev. Um, well, yes, here I am, and um, working somewhat hard, I suppose, um, and on this brand-new show, which I have no idea really what it's about. Perhaps well, you let's go through me. the important things of what this... what The, the, the show... What the, we'll go through the, 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 the key questions that'll come up. The frequently asked questions is, one, who is Brian Mannix and what's the show about? They'd be the first two things I reckon people want to know. So let's, let's address the first one. Who is Brian Mannix? He's a singer, songwriter, actor, TV presenter, radio uh, presenter as well, podcaster. Um, he's a, a father, a husband... Um, and and a dog owner. He has a, in fact, he now has a, a co-host and a dog named Kevin, yep. which is quite good. Uh, you're about 50% of the punchlines of Adam Hill's entire routine for uh, Spicks and Specs. <laughs> um, and and uh, you're an all-round just, a, you know, a normal sort of a bloke who just happens to have had a very successful music career. Well, I don't know about that. I think, Kev, it's, who is Brian Mannix more, you just say... He's a dickhead like the rest of us, just <laughs> trying to trying to find a way to be happy. Okay, I hadn't got to page two yet. We're about right. to get to the... <laughs> but, yes, that is. What's the show about? Well, it's really simple. It's about you and it's about uh, your stories, your songs the, and the people you know. And we're going to meet one of them today who's a, a terrific bloke, as we both know, and uh, and that that's basically what the show's going to be, bits and pieces of, uh, of your life, your story, and the right. stories of the, of the people around you that you've, that you've worked with, that you've come across over the years, and that uh, that are still around to be able to tell the stories. So we've got a, a Mano's Mates segment kind of thing. Sort of like that, yeah. Right. Your, okay. your sort of peers. Well, we've got a great mate on today, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, look, we'll get to him in just a tick, but I do want to welcome and thank our terrific partners who are involved in this program with us. Uh, Life of Brian Mannix, that is, and it is Murcott's Driving Excellence. Uh, terrific people. Uh, they're uh, taking bookings now for defensive driving programs uh, starting in June, which is great news. So now that number is 1300 555576. 1300 555576. Uh, head to the website, get all the details there, murcots.edu.au. Uh, they are up and about and, uh, and doing defensive driving programs uh, through uh, from, from now. So uh, jump on uh, that telephone number, 1300 555576. Murcots Driving Excellence. We welcome Mark and the team. Terrific to have them as part of uh, the program. Now, Brian, I want to get back to um, this talking book that you've done, this uh, audio book. Uh, Going to play a little bit of it, but uh, tell us, you know, just a little bit about uh, set it up before we play the little bit out of the book. Well, before I do, I'll just tell you, I... Murcotts, I know them because they trained me to drive in the celebrity race in the Adelaide Grand Prix in 1985. Yes, they did. Jim Murcott trained me, yep. yep. It was very good, very good. So, yep. yep. Well, Mark Lane and the team there, are, are, are Mark's a, a mad music fan, so he's uh, he's happy to be on board with the program. He's he uh, he's had a, a very a colourful existence himself, which we'll talk about in in later podcasts. But uh, no, it's terrific to have him on board, and, and uh, they probably saved your life because if they hadn't taught you defensive driving skills, you very well could have killed yourself in that Grand Prix. Well, I just wanted to get a taxi and just go around the track and drink <laughs> champagne in the back, but they wouldn't let me do that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough too. So, tell us about the talking book. Okay, well, um, I wrote a book uh, about my American travels and um, it's sort of, it's sort of what, did I, what, did I, what I did on my school holidays 
type of book. Yep. And um, um, my son said, look, you know, you should make it a an audio book. And that seemed like a simple idea at first, but it became a mammoth task in that um, you've got to record, you know, a lot of hours of dialogue and then that wasn't enough for me because I thought, well, you know, if I'm in a plane, I want to hear the plane and if I'm in a car, I want to hear the car and if there's a crowd at the restaurant, I want to hear that crowd. So it ended up becoming like a... um, more like a radio play. Yeah. And it took me months to do this and I'm still waiting for um, Audible to, you know, finish their processing of it. But um, it's come out pretty good. I'm not sure I'd rush into doing another audio book. I'm not in a rush to do it anyway because it does take a long time, but um, hopefully uh, people will enjoy it. All right. Well, let's have a little uh, a little listen to a part of this. This is uh, some of your escapades. I think this is uh, in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. Oh, no, I Las imagine. Vegas, actually. I think. Oh, Vegas. Okay. Well, let's uh, uh, let's take you on a little trip right now. What, have you got a title for this audio book? Oh, the book is called Hell. I didn't even like Al Green. Brian Mannix, <laughs> Tripping USA. And <laughs> you've got to you've got to read the book to find out why it's called Hell. I didn't even like Al Green. But I, I know that story, so I know why it's called that, and we'll we'll uh, discuss that in in future podcasts too. Yeah. But let's have a listen. Here's a little excerpt out of uh, out of Brian's uh, audio book. All right. Marijuana is legal in the state of Nevada, not only for medicinal purposes, but for recreational use as well. This is my mission. We get a cab to 2307 South Las Vegas Boulevard to a place called Essence Cannabis Dispensary. It's a smallish, bright green building that doesn't seem to have any windows. I enter somewhat sheepishly. For some reason, I feel like I'm breaking the law, even though I'm not. I walk up to the counter. The girl asks me for some photo ID. I hand her my license. She takes a few details and then says, Welcome to Essence. I then go into another room where they keep all the gunja. The smiling girl behind the dispensary counter gives us a wonderful welcome. Welcome to Essence. Have you been here before? I say no. And then she asks me what I'm after. Edibles, vapes, pre-rolls, etc. I say I want some pre-rolls. She then points to the sign on the wall listing all the different types of joints they are selling. All right, you've whetted everyone's appetite with that. Uh, so more of the uh, more of the audio book will be coming in uh, in future episodes of uh, of this podcast. With of course, thanks to uh, Mercot Striving Excellence. Now we're going to meet our guest for this week, Brian. Every week we're going to sit you down with uh, someone who you've had something to do with. Now you might have played with them, you might have uh, done a TV show with them, you might have been on a movie set with them. Well, I played for about two years with uh, today's guest um, down at the Roxy Hotel, and I often went on a TV show that he was very prominent on. And I speak, of course, of our old mate, Willie Wilde, who's kindly joined us today. Hey, Mano. Do you two remember meeting each other? I reckon we met at the venue. At the venue? At the venue. I came to see, because Red had produced your record. Oh, okay. And we came to see you play at the venue. And then Mano and I, Kevin, um, worked together at the Roxy in the early 90s too. So we sort of became mates then, you know, and knew a bit more about each other. But I reckon, well, it was probably not so long before that, that that gig at the venue um, down in St Kilda, you know, opposite um, Luna Park. The the venue there very well. It was a great place to play. Well, it was bananas. 
Next door. Oh, bananas next door. Yeah, I never got to play there. I was spewing. And every time I went there, men at work were on doing an 11-minute version of Who Can It Be Now with no riff. (laughs) 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 And George Miller, who directed uh, Mad Max, came to see the Falcons play at Bananas one night. Oh. It was about 1977, late 77 it would have been, because, oh, when did I film Mad Max? It was about, it might have been, yeah, 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 it was 77, maybe start of 78. Oh, and nice. my girlfriend and I, but my girlfriend at the time and I had been extras in Mad Max, like in the opening scene, we were the two young lovers in the field, naked and everything like that. Right? Having, a, having a root in the middle of the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it was in, it was in, it was, it was in, they filmed it down there, um, Point Cook, you know, past there on that uh, Melbourne, Melbourne Waterland or Board of Works, it would have been back then. And anyway, yeah. George found out after, uh, you know, that one of the bikes on the, on the crew, one of our mates, Johnny Lee, who's an actor, said, oh, yeah, Wilbur plays in a band called Jojo's and the Falcons, you know. And George Miller said, oh, yeah, shit, well, you know, we're looking for a theme tune and stuff like that. And uh, so he swanned in to Bananas. Now, Bananas used to hold 300, Kev, yeah. and uh, stacked to the rafters and used about 750 in there on this particular <laughs> night with the Falcons. <laughs> and uh, George has swanned in wearing a white linen suit with a white fedora oh, and a cape. I think he had a cape. A cape? Yeah, a cape. And so into that oh. into that sort of late 70s Melbourne pub rock scene, uh, Dr. George Miller, that he, you know, has swung in to sort of hear the band and just sort of maybe get a, I don't know, maybe get a couple of ideas for, you know, the, the soundtrack of Mad Max. But um, nothing ever happened. But, um, yeah, that was... Um, no, just a little memory. So Would hang on a minute, hang on, hang on, well. and just roll, roll the tape back a minute. So you and your then girlfriend were were, were filmed uh, having it off in the middle of the wetlands at, at Point Cook or thereabouts uh, as yeah. as part of the opening sequence to the Mad Max film. Yeah, it's in the first. It's in the first fifty nine seconds. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, right. in, you're in good and form that day, were you, Will? And. There was an actor uh, looking at us through the crosshairs of a rifle scope. Very good actor he was too, Stephen Millichamp, uh, who sadly died before time. And yeah. in the in the car is um, John Lee. He was the bloke in Mad Max in the original Mad Max who got the saucepan through his throat <laughs> when the caravan. Um, yeah, you know, like the caravan sort of they crash. Anyway, so Michelle and I, they just it just was just. Kevin, it was just something to do, you know. John Lee called up because we were we were mates with um, with him because his wife was mates with Michelle. Anyway, and they just said, "Hey, look, we need a couple of extras for this movie." Right. I said, oh, right, oh, you know, come on. And he said, yeah, well, look, come out with me, because there was no budget. They didn't have runners or anything. We just got to lift out to the out to the set with or the set the location with John and stay there all day, filmed our bit, which was simulated. It was bloody freezing cold. And um, <laughs> and, uh, and um, then, uh, you know, we, but we didn't know. You know, nobody knew anything. Like, um, we said, oh, it's a movie, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah some guy, Mel Gibson, right, you know, and you just sort of go out. And we sat, after we'd finished our bit, we sat in the, uh, in Grant Page's old, had his old Mercedes, and I saw him. Last year, about this time, they had the 40th uh, reunion, 40th year reunion or 40th anniversary of Mad Max up at the Maryborough Harness Club. And I think they shot a few things around Maryborough. So they're up there and there's about, about like, you know, I don't know, 150 vehicles and uh, it was 1,500 people up there. And I saw Grant Page, who was the stunt coordinator, 
legendary stunt coordinator, yeah. not just on Mad Max, but and I reminded him that we sat in his Mercedes after we finished shooting and got so stoned we could barely move. <laughs> <laughs> and what sort of money do you get for um, having I sex on the, in a movie? I reckon we got fifty bucks each that day. There you oh, go. Right. Well, I reckon right. it was fifty bucks each. You know, I'm in the movie for seven seconds, right? And and I, you know, basically said, "You guys would be fucked without me." Um, you know. <laughs> Some would argue it's the best seven seconds in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's uh, there's Wilbur Wild. Uh, we've got a, a, a massive, big chunk more of Willie uh, coming up. He's just a terrific bloke, isn't he, Brian? Oh, he is, and uh, you know, fancy being proud of a sex scene that went for seven seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people have vaccinations that take longer. <laughs> anyway, yes, exactly right. Plenty more will be coming up. Uh, now, I want to talk to you about the, what what you've been up to. Now, you've done a song that's uh, that involves a whole lot of other people, which is not unusual, but uh, this is pretty special. Tell us about this. Ah, oh, well, it's um, my friend James Morley approached me, and he said they were getting a whole lot of people to get together and. And to sing a, uh, a song called Feels Like Home. And they asked me if I'd be like to do be involved. And so via Morse code and um, email and, uh, you know, even um, handwritten letters, we managed to make a record or a song which, um, which you know, just to make people feel good and it's to raise money for Lifeline, which is a very good cause. Oh, good. You know, there's all these wonderful people in it. Um, Mick Peeling was in there and there was a couple of theatre actors I knew and all these wonderful people. And then I was really delighted when I saw Susie Quattro appear in it. Wow. And I thought, because, you know, I was a kid, but Can the Can came out. I was a big yeah. fan of Susie Quattro. And so... Uh, there's probably a lot of other people I should be really impressed on, who I am really impressed <laughs> on the record, but Susie Quattro for me is like, yeah, Susie Quattro, um, what was her name, Pinky Tuscadero? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I can, you know, I can tick that off my bucket list now and say, yes, I've made a record with Susie Quattro. All you're, right. You're sort of the Chris Norman of uh, the Australian music industry. I suppose. I'm not sure who Chris Norman is. No, you remember the duet she did with Chris Norman? He was the lead singer of Smokey. Yeah. And she did that duet with him called Stumbling In. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it wasn't a bad little song, actually. Did they do needle in pins as well, or was that just Smokey by himself? No, I think that was just Smokey by himself. But uh, Susie Cottrow's uh, one of the great, I reckon, one of the great female rock icons. Well, her live show is really good. You know, I went and saw it back in the 80s thinking, oh, this will be a bit daggy. And by the end of the show, I was screaming out, <laughs> going berserk to her. I thought it was a really great show. So good on Susie, and um, I'm pretty happy that I've finally made a record with Susie Quattro. What are you trying to prove, Brian? I'm trying to prove that I've made a record with Susie Q. Uh, we'll get to what uh, What are you trying to prove shortly. That's uh, that's our closing segment of uh, of this podcast. But now we're going to get uh, into the uh, into the big part of your days with uh, reminiscing with uh, with Wilbur Wild, and uh, we're going to take a lovely little journey. here back to when you two got together on stage for the first time. Okay. Can you remember the first time you two played on a on a bill together somewhere? Um, I remember supporting old fifty five. No. Chevron. Really? Was that yeah. that was it with the X Men? That was with the X Men in about nineteen eighty. 
I remember playing at the Chevron many times. I played, I played, the, I played with Tiny Tim at the Chevron. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> yeah, and he just went. And I mean, his if, for those of you who never saw Tiny Tim, he'd do like an hour and a half set, wouldn't stop. Just went from song <laughs> to so it was like an hour and a half medley, from song to song to song, from when the Saints go marching into big bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover, into tiptoe through the tulips, into I'll be seeing you. You know, just it was. <laughs> It was relentless, but uh, <laughs> it was just one of the many gigs we just played at the Chevron. Didn't you play with Dire Straits and all the crowds started yelling out, are you supposed to do something for Dire Straits? Oh, yeah, well, that was, in, that was in Canberra. That was in Canberra. They flew me up for one gig. It was That was 1983. I think it was the Brothers in Arms tour. Yeah. I had to play that nice um, that nice uh, Going Home, it's called. It was a theme tune from Local Hero. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, so uh, well, I got there, and then you know, Nothler and I actually didn't see eye to eye right from the word go, largely because um, oh, he's an incredible guitar player, fantastic songwriter, great singer, and just an all around uh, incredible musician. And and the difference with me was I had my head up my ass, and um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we go on stage ready, and there's a big build up in that tune, you know. Where yeah. um, he's he's at the front playing this sort of like a semi-acoustic solo, you know, this, you know, you can hear a pin drop. It was at the Dixon Sports Stadium. There's about six thousand people there, and he's standing centre stage. There's um, like a, you know, you can hear a pin drop in there's spotlight on him doing this incredible solo, right? And then the tour manager or the stage manager says to me, "Okay, you get walk up the stage, stand next to John Isley." And the stage was huge. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, probably 30, you know, probably 20 metres deep. I stood right at the back and, you know, was listening for my cue. So I'd move forward. My microphone was up the front of the stage and everything. And then somebody spotted me because, you know, the Falcons were pretty big in Canberra, as were all 55, you know. So it didn't, you know, it sort of didn't surprise anyone. That, you know. Anyway, um, somebody's called out in this really quiet part of Nothla's solo. And he goes, Wilbur, Right, you know, and started started this sort of chain reaction where I was, I had my finger to my lips going, you know, shh, like this. And people were saying, Wilbur said, shut up, no, it was people, it was, it, it was sort of sounded like, um, you know, one of those uh, badly edited domestic violence commercials, you know. <laughs> and, um, but we played the tune and, you know, Nofla was, oh, you know, it was just, just it was sort of like not the best timing, you know. What what made you pick up the saxophone? Most of us watched the Beatles and then thought, right, I'm getting the guitar. But you picked up the sax. Why the sax? I had a, I had a collapsed lung when I was 10 and Dr. Jolly said to me now, um, he said, Nicky, my other real name, he said, Nicky, I want you to take your medicine. Yes, Dr. Jolly. I was probably holding mum's hand at the time, you know, up in Eltham. Luck Street, Eltham was where Dr. Jolly was. We lived in Lyle Plenty in those days. He said, now, take your medicine. So yes, yes, stop in and uh, do some swimming. Oh, I like swimming, dog, you know. And he said, maybe play a wind instrument. So um, my grandparents went and bought a clarinet for me, and I started learning that the following year at Ivanhoe Grammar. So probably, you know, like in the October, they bought the clarinet. I learned a little bit from um, uh, one of my schoolmates named Ross Gunther, who's now um, Assistant uh, Deputy Commissioner for Terrorism. And he, oh, he, was, he, was, yeah, he was a fine saxophone player too. And he taught me a couple of bits and pieces, and then I just started learning at school, played in the orchestra, sang in the choir, got to um, year 12 and thought, yeah, shit, this is good. And I started, studied and then uh, ended up playing in a band. In fact, in the, I, I dropped out of Monash in 1973, and later that year, 
I remember uh, we mentioned the venue earlier on in the chat, right? Yeah. The venue in what was the venue in the eighties was actually in nineteen seventy three. It was a proper nightclub directly opposite uh, Luna Park, yeah. and it was a nightclub where they had hostesses who who drank the uh, who and, and you bought you, you the gentleman bought the the umbrella drinks for the hostesses. There were candles and tablecloths. It was like a real nightclub, and I was I was still only seventeen. I was working six nights a week in there, you know. Wow. And then, um, yeah, and it was it was just really good fun. And, of course, from there on in, you know, I had a band in high school and stuff, but, um, you know, thriving on live performance for the rest of, uh, you know, it's 47 years ago I started doing that and um, played with some bands, did some radio, you know, just all that stuff which is never, ever going to be the same again. Our no, grandparents are going to be ask, asking us, man, are they going to be saying, really, did you play it? Like a gig where there were like 400 people and they were just standing and dancing. We go, yeah. You know? <laughs> really? They're, they're going wow. And what do you mean? You know, you, you, you know, they, you, you'd go and see the Angels, Hunters and Collectors, Susie DeMarkey, uh, James Rain, and Boom Crash Opera at the Mornington Race Course, and there'd be 9,000 people. So, yeah, yeah, that's what we used to do. <laughs> Yeah. So how did the old 55 come about? Uh, I went to Sydney to study. I spent a year on the Gold Coast in uh, 74, and then I went to oh. Sydney to study you know, at the conservatorium uh, doing the jazz course in 1975. I started in 1975, and then halfway through the year, I heard an ad on uh, what was then 2JJ, and Glenn A. Baker had come up with this concept of a 50s revival band, and they'd recruited um, a band called Thanis, from, um, uh, where were they, Cronulla Way. So they had two guitar players, that's Rock Pyle and Patrick, and uh, a bass player, Jimmy Manzi. They had a drummer who worked with uh, Baker in the public service, Jeff Plummer. So they had, there, was the, there was the rhythm section. And then they saw, Manzi saw Frank Holden uh, at a Sydney University talent quest or some pub. Oh, wow. And he said to, right, and Holden was a chartered accountant with Price Waterhouse at the time. He's a few years older than us. And Mansi asked if he wanted to join the band. He said, "No, man, I'm a chartered accountant. You know, piss off." <laughs> and Mansi said, "We've got a record. We've got a record deal." And and Holden said, "Oh, really? Yeah." <laughs> so they recorded Diana without me. That was in July 1975, and I joined about a month later when I heard an ad on, um, you know, asking for a saxophone player for All 55. And I went to the audition, and um, I listened to him. I played a couple of numbers with him. And I said, um, I came back into the dressing room. I said, okay, I'll join your band. And they said, hang on, we're supposed to decide that. And I looked around <laughs> over my shoulder and said, nobody else has shown up, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that some of the players in the played on it thought, oh, this isn't going to do anything. You just took a session fee and didn't get the, um, oh, the I did. I, well, I was, I, I, yeah, I didn't get the royalties because we were getting paid, in those days we were being paid like about 80 bucks once in a blue moon. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was as broke as a lord, you know. <laughs> and we'd do six gigs in a week, you know, um, including high school's lunch times. Um, Frank and I were only with that band for about uh, 20 months. Really? We both, yeah, we both left. I joined. I joined in the August of '75, and we both left on the same day in uh, May of 1977. Frankie quit in '77. I went back. I hitchhiked. I was going to lift back to Sydney, and then Eric McCusker. Um, I was staying at Eric's place or his dad's place with Eric. Eric was playing with the John English Band, who were supporting uh, Brian Ferry on on a tour. 
And it was a Sunday afternoon I got back to Sydney after quitting Old 55, and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. He said, I'll, I'll call John up. He said, I'll call John and see if he wants a horn player. I said, great, you know, terrific. So Eric calls John. The next night I'm on stage at the Horton Pavilion with the John English band because John said, oh, yeah, Willie's out of work. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, let's include him. And I uh, got down to Melbourne. You know, we finished on a Sunday night. After the wrestling, we played uh, Festival Hall with uh, Brian Ferry and John English. I remember Brian walking down the stairs to the dressing room and, uh, you know, once again in his beautiful sort of, you know, linen suit and, you know, lovely hat and everything like that. Very cultured man, Brian Ferry. And he's stepping he's stepping through what could have been puddles of, like, I don't know, um, Brute Bernard's blood. <laughs> you know, he's looking at the ground and going, oh, yeah, oh, mate, get boy. Anyway, next morning, next morning, Steve Hill, the original lead singer of the Skyhooks, was managing Joe goes up in the Falcons by then. He called me up and he said, hey, Joe wants you at rehearsal tomorrow at Gary Young's place at Knott Street Ballwin. So I was out of work for about 12 hours between 1975 and 1981. Wow. Wow. That's just the $13 version. Did the people at the conservatorium look down their nose on you being in, in, in rock and roll bands? Well, I, it sort of never intersected, Kev. I mean, I, and I don't think they would. In fact, look, the, one of my teachers there is a guy named Howie Smith who taught improvisation. And he was a master saxophonist. He's still teaching at the University of Cleveland. Uh, I remember um, it's about two years ago now, I was sitting on the ferry from uh, Queenscliff to Sorrento. It was a beautiful day. I was, I don't know what it was. I was just going out of the place and golf or something from Ocean Grove. And I thought, oh, I'll just see what Howie's up to. And this is, what, 1975 to, you know, it was close enough to 33, 34 years. No, more, 40 years. Yeah. And I looked up, you know, just Googled him up. Um, then I, I left a message on the faculty phone for him. So, you know, be, there was a number there, you, could, you know, at yeah. University of Blue. And I let, just left a message to say, oh, look, g'day, Howie, my name's Nick Aitken. You, I don't expect you to remember me, but I studied improv with you, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to let you know that, um, you know, the lessons that we – I learned, but I'm still implementing them in my music, and you know, it was really valuable. And thanks. Anyway, 30 seconds later, I get a call, and it's from Howie Smith. He says, "Hey Nick, I do remember, I do remember you." I said, "Oh, that's well." I said, oh, "I sort of went on with it a bit." He said, "I know that man, you know, and <laughs> you know, you play with those bands and stuff, and you know, it was so cool to be able to thank him, oh, well. and also for you know to acknowledge that um, he was like one of these guys. You know, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been." It's been more than how he's been. It's been a dozen, twenty people in my life that I've, uh, you know, that have really sort of affected. You know, like uh, encouraged or saw something in me or stuff like that. And you know, I've been able to thank most of them. That's good. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've been back to see my old guitar teacher for. No, wish I could, but uh, yeah, but yeah, that's that's the right. yeah, because that's because he's he's got a restraining order out on you too. <laughs> that doesn't help. Because <laughs> uh, I heard about the guitar teacher with the AVO. You know, it's just a drag, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were really good friends with Ivan Buttrose for a while, is that right? Oh, look, Blackers, Blackers and I were doing breakfast radio on New Z in what, 89, 90, something like that. And um, Ita was our Sydney correspondent. So a couple of times each week, a couple of mornings a week, we'd talk to Ita 
just down, just on the phone. And she was always great fun, always classy, always uh, very, you know, whimsical and, you know, terrific, terrific chick. And then we went to Sydney to do an outside broadcast from Isis's study in, in her house for a week. Right. And um, it was, like, hilarious. Yeah. And then something happened. What happened? Was it the Logies or was it a night out? Of, it was something. Anyway, Ida and I just went on a date. And it was really big news. It was like, a, you know, it was like in the, in the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun. Oh, dear. That Ida, this, yeah, that Ida Buttrose, radical celibate, was dating Wilbur Wilde, you know. And, I mean, it was, all, it was all very innocent, I must say. And then somebody, a couple of weeks after that, they asked Ida, they said, well, you know, uh, what's it like being a radical celibate? And she said, oh, I'm not that radical. And <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> it was all a bit of, yeah, all a bit of fun. But I came across some photos, some lovely black and white photos of me, John Blackman and Ida Buttrose sitting around her desk in her study. In one, in one of the photos, I'm smoking, John's smoking, um, I've got Ida's, I've got Ida's cat on my lap, and we're all laughing too. And it was just, it was just, it's just this mo, like a, a photo of a moment. And I sent them, I sent them through to Ida uh, via the email, and just said, look, you know, um, hope you're doing well. Just, uh, just, um, yeah, it was before she got um, um, the ABC gig. Is uh, is music still a, a real a real sort of lifeblood for you, Willie? Well, it has been up until now. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I'm I'm sort of waiting for it to unfold, Kevin. Remember when we were doing um, that show off the record? Yeah, I do. Kevin Hillier, yeah. Lester Parsons, and Willie Wilde. As back uh, 1985, that was yep. on XY, and we'd uh, we'd sort of record it, Mano. Oh, man, you yeah. filled in a couple of times, didn't yeah, you? When I was on the road, yeah. of course you did. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, remember when um, um, Harry Nilsson came in, Kev? Oh, I do. I do with uh, fondest memories. <laughs> Man, I, you got Hillier, Lester Parsons sitting there, and uh, and and uh, Harry Nilsson pulls out a bag of amphetamine. He said, "Well, <laughs> it's a bit early in the day for me. Anybody want a heart starter?" Oh. <laughs> that conversation went really quickly and really well. I thought, <laughs> and was and was wa- and I and, so, and was washed down by two bottles of Hennessy brandy. Yeah, I was, actually, I know that I wouldn't have had a drink that day because I didn't have alcohol between no, didn't. 1980 and 1987. Or 81 and 87. So I did seven, seven and a bit years with no booze, you know. So, and that was in the middle of that. So, um, but um, the other was fine, you know, just a little art starter. <laughs> have a chat with Harry Nilsson. I mean, you can't do a line of speed with Harry Nilsson. Who can you do one with? <laughs> 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 Got to ask you about the hey hey days because I mean they're such they're such an important part of uh, of, of of what people know about you. Um, well, what do you want to know? Well, were they were they fun? Did you enjoy them? Do you miss them? Uh, do you do you have fond recollections of uh, of the days uh, on on the set? Because I mean you were there you were there through its its heady times and and sort of when it went belly up. Seventeen years, I did. How about that? Jeez. You know, you ask about live performance before, right? Like everything in my life, all of the people that I value, uh, the mothers of my children, uh, the great moments, the associations, the characters that we meet along the way, that's all because of gigs. Yeah. It's all because of life. I mean, now, I've, I've got three, I've got uh, five children from three different women who I met at gigs who used to come and see me, you know, and that we became friends. 
um, you know, the musicians with whom I've worked over the years, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I reckon uh, the reason uh, I started doing Hey Hey is because uh, back in the day when you had a new single out, you you know, you can't... Hey Hey. You'd get on Hey Hey. You'd play Bombay Rock, head around to Mel Williams' place for a little while, and then just head into the Channel 9 studios. Yeah, yeah. Just all of those opportunities and, you know, some, some that you recognise at the time, some that you, you, you pick up, others you, you, know, you either have enough time or you don't, you know, or whatever it is, but they all come about because of live performance. Yeah, that's pretty much true for me too, I reckon. Um, You've both done acting. How did you both fall into, a, into, into getting acting roles? Was that just because you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone? I knew Lorraine Wilson, who was boss of publicity at Channel 9. That's right. And uh, she was promoting Flying Doctors, which was going to come out. And um, she got me an audition for Flying Doctors and I got the part mainly so that they'd, I think, so that they'd attract a younger audience to the show. So, you know, I did four episodes of that and that was good fun. What about you, Willie? I did an episode of the Fly Docs. What did you play? With, um, oh, I played a, a, a musical truckie. Yeah, and I, I played guitar in it. It was directed by a guy named Mark DeFriest. Um, I did the two-hander with Nicky Coghill. Maury was there. Maury was the bartender. Oh, yeah. Uh, David Rain was there. I did a uh, – and um, did a scene with David. And I wrote a tune because my truck had broken down or something. Oh. Um, and I was stuck in town. And uh, so there was some going on. And I wore a check shirt. I played guitar and I wrote a tune called 18 Wheels Are Rolling. <laughs> wow. Was that in the show? Yep, and I got to sing it. I sang it live, and it was the 18 wheels are rolling. Um, 18 wheels are rolling countrywide. 18 wheels are rolling. 18 wheels are rolling with my dusty old guitar right by my side. Oh, and yeah. Um, yeah, that was my so first. Did you get the for that? <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't even registered with Abra. I didn't register. You know, you know things like um, uh, Chuck Lotto. Saturday night, Chuck Lotto night. Forgot about four chips. are gonna be all right. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't registered with Abra, so I, you know, I just I didn't think. You know, I didn't think. You know, about that sort of that stuff. That would have been worth a fortune. The Chuck Lotto. Oh, yeah, it would have been. You know, those, those couple of years would have. You know, picked up a couple of grand a year for that. You reckon, Mano? And you would have picked up maybe ten, twenty grand. I think. Um, Peter Sullivan was making twenty five grand out of the Hinches thing. That's good. That's good to know now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the acting thing once again, it comes. It, you know, the connection. Came, you know, you know, you're doing gigs. Somebody comes up at a gig and they say, oh, "Look, you know, you know, um, the cooling got a gold." I was cast as a saxophone player in the band, and when I got there. Um, the, like, there was a band in the Cool and Go to Gold, on the, you know, and um, they had a lead singer, a guy named Kerry Serio. Did the Johnny O'Keefe story. That's right, yeah. yeah really, you know. And Kerry had um, decided he didn't want to do this role, and so the director said to me, uh, the director and the writer, a guy named Peter Shrek, Igor Algens was the director of Cool and Go to Gold, and I got summoned to, uh, to, their, you know, to a room, and they said, can you, uh, can you sing? I said, yeah, of course. And I said, can you play guitar? I said, yeah, how many? Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, because get the gig and worry about the details later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I ended up singing on the soundtrack. I sang Tim uh, Tim Finn's um, There's a Fraction, Too Much Friction. And I mimed the voices of John English and John Gallimore, 
a Melbourne guitar player yeah, uh, who had yep. written a tune for that movie called We Are the Kids with the Sun in Our Eyes. And I still with them for great songs. Oh, really anthematic thing. Yeah. yeah. We are the kids with the sun in our eyes, but we're seeing it anyway. It was like really powerful stuff. That was, what, 19, uh, it was about 84, I think. Terry, Terry Stereo, when he played Johnny O'Keefe, there was a great line in that where he was drunk and the cops were arresting him and he says, you can't arrest me. I'm a very famous person. (laughs) When he was doing your hair, David argues did something to upstage him after the parachute scene and they had a punch on in the nude at the side of the stage. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Were you doing hair, Mano? No, I did uh, Bad Boy Johnny. That's right. Night, and where will Rocky is my theatre thing. You did Rocky Horror playing Eddie and Dr. Scott, yeah? About 750 shows. Wow. wow. <laughs> hey, who was, in, who was in Rocky Horror with you, Willie? We had McLaughlin. We had uh, Tim Ferguson. was uh, uh, Marcus Graham. They were our three. Oh, and Jason Donovan in Perth. They were uh, oh, the no. four Frankenfurters with whom I worked. Gina Riley, our first Janet, uh, followed by Joe Beth Taylor. Followed by Ali Fowler. Oh, no, followed by uh, Toddy Goldsmith in Ali Fowler. Red Simons was the narrator for most of it, except yeah. when his uh, uh, children were being born. So then um, Kamal took over from Red. He, he was. Um, but we had an incredible cast. Uh, we opened on July the 1st, 1992, at the Comedy after rehearsing for a month. And that lineup was um, Glenn Butcher, who you may remember from Fast Forward, yeah. uh, Gina Briley, Peter Rose Thorne as Riff Raff. Uh, Craig McLaughlin, incredible Craig McLaughlin, great singer, great guitar player, and just smashed Frankenfurter. And um, we did 16 weeks sellout at uh, the Comedy, and then we went to Adelaide. We did about eight weeks in Adelaide with Marcus Graham as our Frankenfurter. And I'll tell you what, you know, McLaughlin had his approach, which is great, you know, it's just this flamboyant. Fantastic. Marcus Graham did this steamy, bloody sexuality thing. I mean, at the end of the, show, the end of the show, there wasn't a man or woman who didn't want to go home with Marcus. You know, <laughs> he was won a green room award for that, didn't he? Um, oh, I hope so. He's one. Well, he's, he should. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, Craig came back in Sydney. Tim Ferguson came along. Oh no, did, we, <laughs> did a season in Perth. Did about eight weeks in Perth. It would have been 1996 with Jason Donovan. Who had, uh, who had just arrived from England, and because of some pending, like, drug charges or something, the British tabloid press had followed him out to Perth. So uh, Paul Dainty, um, we're doing it for Dainty Corporation, and the uh, company manager, a guy named Warren Bates, said, hey, look, you guys... We were doing a press conference with Jason today, and we just we just want um, and Red and I were asked to sit either side of him and ride shotgun on him during this press conference. You know, so Red ended up arguing with the British tabloids, telling him to sit down and shut. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, it wasn't it wasn't Jason who needed to bloody be ridden shotgun on. It was us. We <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Jason was fantastic. Um, and then in 98, we did uh, six months at Star City. We started rehearsing in June and then ran up till just before Christmas, and that was with Tim Ferguson, who, unbeknownst to anybody but company management and his wife, had then just been diagnosed with MS. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he, and he just did a fantastic job. He was a, a, a different, once again, different. Like, they're all different, you know. Yeah. Um, McLaughlin to uh, Marcus Graham to... 
uh, Jason Donovan to Tim Ferguson. They were all different, but they just had their, you know, this terrific take on what Frankenfurter was. And I think that's the nature of the Rocky Horror Show too, you know. Tim and I became great mates during that time. We still are. He's a, an incredible guy. Once again, you know, there's a very important person in my life uh, who I met because of life performance. Yeah. Hey, uh, Willie, has you been... You should uh, write a book, Will. Yeah, absolutely. I was just about to say that. How come there hasn't been a Wilbur Wild book? Oh, it's still too hard, you know, <laughs> at the moment anyway. I love telling stories. Part of what I was doing uh, up until this, um, this thing was uh, I'd go out with a trio. Do you remember Hey, Hey, It's Saturday? And of course, okay, yeah, of course. And I said, well, look, thank heavens you've got someone here who I am. Yeah. But there's some stuff along the way that happened that, you know, maybe you don't know about. And I give them a $13 version yeah. and uh, just say that, you know, I went to, you know, when I left school and I hitchhiked up to the Gold Coast and I was, you know, and a friend of mine was up there, a saxophone teacher friend of mine was there and he um, got a phone call and, you know, he couldn't do the gig, but I, he said I could do the gig. And so I went down and there was um, Roy Orbison and he was touring Queensland, so I got the gig touring with Roy Orbison in his band. and Wow. Oh. And then, and then you know, and I tell, I tell a couple of stories about Roy, and then, um, and then I say, and I, you know, off the back of that, I thought Roy was a really good guy. So, and then I said, I'd like to do a Roy Orbison song for you now. And so we do, you know, do um, Candyman or something, whatever. Yeah. And then, um, like you, you mentioned Dire Straits before, you know, I tell that story. I thought, well, look, I think, you know, I toured with Dire Straits, you know, it just came about because I was, and I toured with Dire Straits, and you know, I tell that story, and it's always a bit of a laugh, and, then, um, uh, so in, but still, Mark Knopfler, incredible musician, great writer, and we'd like to play that tune for you now. And so it's just sort of chronicles a few things. I mean, there's, you know, stuff like, I, know I can just sort of tell those stories, and I love doing yeah. that. And I, I, I uh, you know, meeting Muhammad Ali and, you know, Mad Max, and I mean, he's just. Muhammad Ali? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you meet him? When was that Ali here for the Logies? Was it 79? Oh. I reckon, because I was up in Sydney with the Falcons. And earlier in the day, before he came down to Melbourne, for the infamous, you know, for the Burt, I, I like the boy thing, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Earlier that day, he was in Sydney and a journo mate of mine hipped me to it. He was at the East Sydney Police Boys Club, which has a boxing gym that's in Crown Street, just off Park Street, sort of on the way to the cross from the city. And, uh, in fact, Eric McCusker, I called Eric and said, hey, um, Arlie, you want to maybe come down, you know? And so Eric and I went down there, and there he was. You know, there was only about 30 people or so. You know, Ali had his, uh, his entourage, and there were some kids there that he was taking photos with, you know, uh, boxing uh, sort of demos around the country, whatever they call it. You know, Aussie Joe Bugner, uh, the then, oh, I think, look, I'm not a real fight expert, but I think that the then Commonwealth heavyweight champion was a guy named Jimmy Ellis, no relation to him. Oh, yeah, the Lester. And who else? And there's a couple of other sparring guys, and they were just sort of sparring and doing this. They were, they were in the country doing exhibition bouts. Yeah. And um, so Ali was there, and it was uh, it was incredible. I'll tell you the story one of these days, how he uh, decided that I was his enemy and started sort of, you know, freaking me out and hassling me <laughs> and sort of looking at me, giving me the Ali death stare. And then, oh. um, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of cool, you know? It's those things that happen along the way. Just because somebody says, oh, I do you want to do this? Go, yeah, sure. Let's have a go at that. You know? So you show sort of like an evening with Wilbur Wilde. Kind of thing. 
And if I, if I include everything, it's a couple of months with Wobble Wobble. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll just start there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Willie, it's been, uh, been lovely to catch up, mate. We could, uh, so, yeah, we could talk for hours, but we'll get you back because uh, there's obviously a lot more stories to tell and we'd, uh, we'd love to tell them. Yeah, good on you, fellas. Well, you know, I, yeah. feel like I've, I feel like I've chewed your ear off today, but you did actually lead me down some pathways to – to um, uh, great memories, and um, it's something that we we three share. We've all got our uh, our moments uh, together and apart, you know. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, good, good work, absolutely. Good on you, Willie. Thank you, well Willie. Done. Take care. Thanks, Mano. Absolutely fantastic to have the great Wilbur Wild on the program, uh, raconteur of uh, unbelievable. And we only we only kind of scratched the surface with some of the stories that Willie's got there, Brian. Yeah, I know he could. He should write a book, as we as we mentioned. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he's uh, he's a great uh, orator. I think would be the word. Would that be yes. the word? A great yes. orator. He can just make even you can tell a bad joke and make it hilarious because of the way he's timing and he's you know he's very good. Yep, no, he is, he's terrific. We thank him for his time and uh, if we get the chance, we certainly will have him back on again to tell some more stories of the Muhammad Ali type stories that uh, that we heard there. All right, Brian, uh, now this is this is one of your favourite expressions in life it and is. we're going to turn it into a segment for this, uh, for this podcast. It is... What's he trying to prove? What are they trying to prove? Oh. Exactly. Well, well now, I'll tell you what. Coming yep. from a man who recently has done a you know record with Susie Quattro, he's got a talking mm-hmm. book about to come out, an audio yeah. book about to come out. So, what are you trying to prove? And what's what? What do you think people are trying to prove, Brian? Um, well, I'm just trying to prove that um, I'm not totally useless. Um, <laughs> although there would be many that argue I am. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to keep busy during this uh, you know isolationic isol- isolationic time. How's yep. that for a stupid word? That's a new word. Yeah, it's a beauty. Um, so, you know, I'm just doing my best. As I said earlier in the show, just being another dickhead, trying to be happy. So that's what I'm trying to prove. That I'm... So what's caught your eye of recent times that's, uh, that's well, got you screaming at the television or okay. the radio or right. you know, whatever? All right, I'll tell you what's got me. Um, they've got a series of ads and they're called Real Life Insurance. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen these ads, but they get they obviously look for really bad actors and so they've got some guy and his wife who just look at each other the whole time. It's very unnatural acting. And they'll say something like, gee, I just heard from Jim and he's not doing too well. Oh, goodness. Thank goodness he's got the life insurance. Yes, maybe that's something we should do. Was if we something happened to us, what would happen to our kids? Uh, and then he goes, uh, they go, <laughs> well, we need someone reliable. I've heard good reports about real life insurance. Why don't we do one simple thing and get some acting lessons? <laughs> they always going to do one simple thing and they're going to phone the call and, oh, for God's <laughs> sake, every actor on these things, it's just if you get offered to do a real life insurance ad actors, knock it back. It will ruin your career. Why don't we just do one simple thing and give them a call? Oh, it's god-awful. And it makes me want to say, Kev, real life insurance... What are you trying to prove? Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, yeah, bad acting in TV commercials is something that... Uh, have you ever done a TV commercial? Um, no. No, I haven't. Have, um, you ever been, uh, have you ever been asked to do one? Yeah, I got asked to do... Uh, you know that one that uh, they say uh, parked like a rock star down at the airport parking? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, they auditioned me for that and they wanted... Let me guess, the part of the rock star? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it was a really funny little ad... And the director wanted me in it, but the client sort of went, well, hang on, it's to make every 
everyday people feel like a rock star. He is a rock star, so there for that reason I didn't get it. But, um, you know, I felt I'd do it for the right... I wouldn't do it for real-life insurance. <laughs> Why don't we do one simple thing and make a call? And that other one where they, they get the life insurance and said, you can do it with just one simple call. And the caller always rings up and goes, I'm 34, non-smoker. Well, ring up and say, I'm 56 and I'm a chain smoker. I want to see what the thing is then. God, insurance ads, what are they trying to prove? <laughs> exactly. Yes, that is uh, that is the life of Brian, as we know it up until this particular point in time. Uh, now, we want to thank Murcott's, uh, Mark and the team at Murcott's Driving Excellence uh, for being part of, pro- of the program and for getting behind us. They are taking bookings now uh, for defensive driving programs uh, from now, right now. one 555 576. Ring that number now. 1300 555 Go to the website, check out all the details. It's Uh Happy to have a chat to you. And of course, what better recommendation can you have than the fact that Brian Mannix was taught by him for the uh, Grand Prix in the mid-80s and has lived to tell the tale? That is the best recommendation you could possibly ask for. Uh, Murcott's Driving Excellence, 1300 576. That is the number that uh, we want you to call. Check out the website, murcott's.etu.au. And, of course, more in the life of Brian coming. Just don't, don't do anything. Just, just look after yourself, Brian. Why don't we just do one simple thing? And give. <laughs> 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 oh, so you, Kev. Jack.